You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For the Now media production. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of your favourite weekly sports podcast. We've got another fantastic show for you, bringing you a roundup of some great sports and a brilliant guest from the world of women's rugby to talk about the upcoming Women's World Cup that starts in New Zealand this weekend. As you all know, my name's Andy Callahan. It's slightly different this week, as my usual partner in crime is on a family holiday in Australia. So I brought in a guest co-host for this week. Like Tony and I, he's a fellow sports nut, an Arsenal fan in football and a Leinster fan in rugby. He was also, early on in his career, on the books at Chelsea. So it's a pleasure to welcome, for one week and one week only, Paddy Malarkey. Paddy, how's it going? Very good. I love that introduction, for one week only. That was very similar to my time at Chelsea, if I'm being honest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think we need to sort of maybe own up there. I was being slightly disingenuous. You were on the books at Chelsea. Quite, yeah, sort of, not quite literally, but um, when I came out of university, the first, one of the first temp jobs I got was actually working in their membership department. So when people would phone up irate while they couldn't get a ticket to the next home game, they could get through to me and um, I'd, I'd give them the therapy they needed. Um, joking aside, it was a fascinating time to be there because it was um, a season after, uh, not a season, it was a summer in which a Bramovich, Bramovich took over. Uh, had just preceded it and then but then they just let Ranieri go and Mourinho arrived so just as he arrived and all the big signings were being made um sort of like so we saw Makaleli and then we saw Drogba come in one day we were working there um so yeah literally it was literally like I'd say four weeks uh, the place has gone downhill since I left frankly but <laughs> I'm, I'm shedding no tears to be no, honest I, with you I, I would imagine not as an asshole fan I mean is that the reason that you got moved on because there was only room for one special one not the two of you I mean obviously I've got no doubt he was I was top of his mind Jose when he was going through negotiations like is that allowed in membership still going to be around um no like uh amazing to be around a, a club at that level, even just like right in the back office side of things. Hilarious and amazing at times. And um, but yeah, also like I did get a lot of stick for being a double agent on the phone. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, if you're gonna try and bring it down, bring it down from the inside. That's what I've been told. I mean, let's get into, you know, without hanging around, first things first, you must have been more than pleased with the way the North London Derby went at the weekend. I was absolutely buzzing. So for context, um, unfortunately, I I had to travel. But what that meant was I just listened to the game on the radio, which I think is always interesting to like get a sense of description. And then once you know the result, you watch it back. And I remember thinking as I was listening and driving, we're we're battering these. (laughs) We're absolutely hammering these. And then to watch it when you know the emotion is out of it because you know the result and you think, well, actually, I'll be a bit more um, balanced, a bit more lucid maybe about my view of the game and seeing it visually. But I generally think um, that that was a hiding. I I know, like, the score was 3-1. There was a sending off, which might come on to and so on. But um, the manner in which it came about was a bit of a a a slap. And I think it... um, you know, I, 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 of course, I want, I want to talk about my club, but I'm here in, in a 
and neutral capacity. So it's important we riff on Tottenham's pain a little bit, just just for a moment or two, maybe a couple <laughs> hours. But um, genuine point, I just like it struck me. I've like we've got mutual friends who are Spurs fans. I've got a lot of work. I've got one who I've stitched up with a bet, which I'll have to mention in this segment before we go. But I think this is. <sighs> I don't know if it's the right phrase. I think this is as good as it gets if, if you're Spurs under Conte. Like, this is the actual plan, how they set up. Because in the first half, they had the better chances, I think. Like, two or mm. three guilt-edged ones. And we were playing great, but I don't I don't think um, we necessarily... It wasn't like the Alamo. The second half was slightly different. Um, but the thing is, I think this is like... This is Pete Conte now. Like, he... he you know, how would you feel if you're those players who, like, everyone loved reporting how they're throwing up in preseason? He was working them so hard. It's a grind playing that way. It's hard when you're not, like, when you're winning one nil and then getting the odd results here and there. You're dependent on amazing attackers, which they got. But then you get spanked like that. Like, I just wonder how the mood is. Um, and I'm conscious, obviously, that his brand is a is a one of a better phrase, a fire brand as a leader and manager. Um, I'm not sure in the modern game where you take that when you've had a result and a performance like that. And again, just to underline, like, good team. I still think they could finish possibly third. I think they're that good. Um, but, you know, that they got. I think we gave them a really hard time. And that was a, it was a really big day for us, I think, psychologically. There was a, there was a big golf in class watching the... Uh, I, I only watched the highlights on a Saturday evening. But, yeah, certainly from what I saw, big golf in class. I mean, I'll admit that, you know, pre-season when we had our regular football correspondent, Billy Carr, on my tip was City first, Spurs second, and Arsenal third. I'm going to even say now, if, if I'm paying out on that bet, I'm, you know, <laughs> not the way I see it going now. I definitely don't see Spurs finishing ahead of Arsenal this season. I think Arsenal, I think City are, are miles clear of anyone else. They're just looking so good. But I think Arsenal definitely going to be up there and I think second place is is well within their grasp I can't see other teams doing that damage to Arsenal regularly that Arsenal did to Spurs this weekend and I think you're right I think you know almost with Spurs it's kind of they're going to be up there they're going to be chasing the top four but yeah I, I don't see it being them being a title chasing club I think they'll be in the mixed top four. He'll find a way, Conte. He'll, he'll find a way or he'll find new players or whatever. For us, if you were to tell me now, like we're going to fast forward X amount of months and you've got fourth place and goal difference, would you take it? I'd be like, yeah, absolutely. Give me that all day. I can see why some people are like, oh, is second in play? If you're really ambitious and very optimistic, like I can, I can hear an argument. But for me it's between us and Spurs to get those final two slots. I'm, I think Liverpool, I, I know there seems to be a lot up there, but I think they'll, they've got, they, they've done it previously. And I think as well, we've got a, the, the big variable here is we actually have two seasons. We've got the games up until mid November, a stack of players are then going to go away and then we're, they're going to go to World Cup and they're going to be working again on Boxing Day back in the Premier League. It's nuts. It's nuts. Uh, the absolute shambles of a World Cup and the, you know, placing it in the middle of a, a season and just what that does to a season. You're right. I think, you know, you're almost going to see a what happens pre-November and then post-November. Who knows? There are players going to be absolute shaft. I don't think it'll be so much December when that starts to tell. But as you get into January, February, the pitches get really heavy. 
the, yeah. the sets in and players uh, who are, you know, have played right through and made finals and have played all those games out in Qatar in the heat, they're going to have that in their legs. And I think that's when mm. it will tell. Someone like Asaka, like he's played so much wall-to-wall football for two or three years now. And um, to your point, when you get into, say, Easter period, which is normally like a decisive period where there's lots of games, lots going on, I've had like eight months of it. But I have to, before we like kind of go off on two tangents, there's like two things I have to mention in the context of North London Derby. The first is um, Big Bill Saliba. This man, this, this like, we, we've got to sign him up. We've got to get him signed down. For, like, I'm willing to go on record now. I've got a house with a mortgage that's nearly paid up. I'm willing to put that towards any deal for like half a week's wages or whatever it is for him. You know, <laughs> I've got like a couple of TVs you can sell. I don't know. I've got a swatch watch, probably get 20 quid for that. Um, but we have completely lucked out with what we've got there. Like, complete fluke that he's ended up seemingly happy playing well at the club but sensational i i go on record and i'm willing to like have someone clip this back throw in my face or find me an alternative oh we will do 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 but i'll put this out there i there is no center back in that age range of the same quality and standing or shown the same potential and he's walked into the toughest league in europe and he's absolutely bossing it it's bonkers it's mad and i think he's been like a key piece of what we've done um be able to see to your point like i mean i would i take I, I, whatever the route is to champions league i'd be delighted but we'll see um one asterisk one line of doubt i'll mention is um we've already got two games everton and man city uh linked to the, the death of the queen they're now going to happen probably after the world cup at some point in new year mm-hmm when no one knows like that is an illustration and imagine if we get a COVID cancellation like the backlog is going to appear from nowhere so um yeah we'll see how it goes um but if i may it was one other point i just want to mention about a friend of mine who's a spurs fan who had the bet can i just tell a quick story on this yeah i was about to say if if you're talking going all in this is yeah you taking on a former pro poker player with a bet on the game big risk there mate well, sometimes I've had it a lot in my career, just kind of anecdotally and reflectively. Uh, ignorance has truly been bliss and, and in some ways a gift. Um, my colleague and friend, Pat Poles, wonderful guy, top guy, moved to the UK a few years ago from Arizona previously, big Dallas Cowboys fan. And he's like, I want to get into London life and sports life. And what he kept noticing was people around the London area had like a very strong opinion or reaction to Spurs when he'd asked them their opinion of them. He's like, that could be the club for me. That's my, that's a bit like the Dallas Cowboys. Anyway, <laughs> fast forward, we've been working together in a, a couple of years. Um, and it was just like, I, I don't know how he got talking about it. I lost the bet last year um, where he's kind of basically he's going out for dinner with his wife on me um, as a result of the run-in last year of Arsenal Spurs. I just put it out there on Friday night. I was like, name your price. I'll do like, come on. I, I just can't resist just pride before a fall. Say what you need or want. And then um, on around 11 o'clock on Friday night on Slack, I got a message where he tagged basically everyone on our football channel. He's like, winner, whoever's team loses, um, they've got to wear the opposition's kit to work for the day and then buy beer for the person all night after work. Are you in or what? And I was like, oh, yeah. I remember reading that in like a cold sweat 
and like thinking I've goaded him and now he's responded with like a proper good bet and I was like everyone's looking it's like I was like I accept and um I mean this is yeah. a guy that used to do this for a living mate <laughs> yeah how hard can it be though like and he is a fair play to Pat he is um, I've been informed he's looking up uh shirt sizes today but um yeah uh, so the bill will be on Pat and this Patrick will be uh raising a glass to your Arsenal for, for that result of the weekend fair play to him to do that uh you know as a Spurs I'm putting on an Arsenal shirt I've got to admit, I can do it. As a Newcastle fan, if I'd lost a bet, I, I couldn't wear a Sunderland kit. I, I I just couldn't do it. So fair play to him. Well, I did ponder when it got back to one one. It's like, well, like how, how do I want to resign? Like, what's, what's, <laughs> what's, what's the most like what was the best way to manage this? This goes horribly. Quickest wrong. way to get out. Yeah. Great result for Arsenal. You mentioned uh it wasn't the only derby this weekend, the Manchester Derby. And all I'll say on that is that I hope Tony didn't stay up to watch it in Perth. As to use a technical term, United were gubbed. I mean, <laughs> six three, but you know, at one point, what was it? Six one and four nil at halftime again. And they just didn't even look at the race. I mean, how good is Haaland? I yeah, uh, I remember just thinking when he arrived, I thought this is what this is going to be fascinating to see how this plays out, because this is like ideal age. Right manager in theory, bit like a vo- one of like the super clubs in Europe. It's all set up for him. And then after the charity shield, he has like a glaring miss there. And there's a lot of questions about the amount of touches he's having as in general play with them. Um, I think we might look at this. Like I know he's a unique case, but again, Pep, how they uses that role, that striker, that individual, he might make us look at how we redefine what it means to be a striker. Like to have so few touches, but basically all of them are either an assist or a goal a lot of the time. Um, it's staggering efficiency, but also like, I mean, in terms, I, I've often got quite bored watching City because it's like, you know, it's it's like a cat toying with some sort of injured bird or animal points. <laughs> but I feel like, I feel like watching them on Sunday, I feel they've dialed it up a little bit in terms of not just like toying, but actually like, yeah, we're going to stick some goals on you. But um, I think the biggest story is United. I know City were amazing. They're staggering. And Haaland and all that's around it, terrific. Um, they've got a, they've shown a propensity already this season, like the Brentford result. I mean, they did a number on us at home as much down to our own failings at their place. But um, I don't think this is... I know he's had a few results in the spin, the manager, but I've got serious doubts about him, if I'm being honest. Um, I think he's... Um, there's, there's a little bit in over his head and there's, there's a lot of big major surgery. Everyone's talked about it a lot already, but I don't know what you think. Like, where, where would you, like... Where, would you yeah. even place them as a runner and rider in that discussion? United, no. No, I can't, I can't even see them making uh, the Europa League or the Europa conference or the euro mm. egg cup or whatever it is next season i don't see them in the in the maybe in the shake-up for that but no definitely top four i said we're going to be city spurs arsenal chelsea i don't see that changing now apart from the order um so yeah i i just can't i don't think united are there i think ten Hag is good i think he's still got to resolve the whole ronaldo situation again you know ronaldo on the bench on Saturday, not necessarily a bad thing. I think that's where um, he deserves to be at the moment. But to then come out and say, I would, you know, I respect him and I kept him off the pit. There's too much talk around 
whether Ronaldo's playing or not, whether he's playing well or not. I, mm-hmm. I, I'd get him out of the club. But move, moving on swiftly, so uh, rugby union. Uh, I mean, the Worcester situation has now got worse. Uh, we Tony and I announced just as we were recording last week that they'd been suspended from all competitions. Now four of their top players have gone out on a season-long loan to Bath. I mean, it's it's not like you... I mean, the owners came close to being on our get-a-grip uh, this week, um, having said that it's the fault of the players and the fans that the club are in this mess. I mean, you've got to remember, these are the same owners that maybe are conveniently forgetting that they've sold the Six Ways car park, a piece of prime real estate just off the M5 motorway, to another of their companies for a fraction of its value. But, I mean, I know you've got some thoughts on the whole um, sorry saga and, you know, looking at the wider premiership and and some of the knock-on effects on that, Paddy. So uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, there's two things that strike me. The first is um, in football, Premier League championship, in like soccer football, You've got community assets that make millions of pounds, sometimes billions of pounds. So they're, they're not allowed to fail. There's always someone willing to gamble because of the nature of the revenue streams and so on. In rugby, I think there's a problem. On the outside looking in, you've got, in some ways, even bigger community assets, genuine community assets that are like the hub of a community and the people who are a part of it. But it feels like almost... And I'd love to be corrected on this by anyone. Like almost sometimes rugby union club sides are just left to things that things are left to escalate and dwindle. And they're just like almost left to their own devices, like in the wilderness. Like the, the illustration you just gave there of like, was it four players having to go to loan on Bath? Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, this isn't like, say, again, comparison with, uh, you know, football. There's a wide variety of options in those couple of tiers, top tiers. Down below, it gets more difficult. Just say, just from even from a geographical standpoint, but like these players at that level, like it's pretty. Options are limited, and the nature of the sport, what you have to give, just to get to compete at that level, I can only imagine. And I just, it baffles me. It baffles me that um, you know, with you've seen this time and again down the years of like clubs going to the wall or flying this close to the wind. I hope we're still pull out of it, but I don't understand how and why this happens. I don't know. Like if you have a view or, or something to shed some light on it. I mean, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think in terms of governance from the uh, governing body, I mean, the RFU um, has got its own fiscal problems. Um, so very much that has really sort of, I guess, clipped their wings in terms of being able to fund not just the club game below international level, but also then the grassroots level. And as you say, you know, then football, this would have been tackled much earlier. Simon Massey-Taylor, the chief executive of Premier Rugby, so the, the governing body of the Premiership clubs, has only this week gone out and asked the clubs to open up their books for further inspection. Now, he's been in charge of various parts of the governing body, Premier Rugby, for the last five years. And a lot of these um, statements and accounts can be found at Companies House. So why it's taken this five years and this now with Worcester being um, suspended, WASPs at the moment being in talks with investors, but if they fail, they're facing a winding up order. I mean, at the moment, the 13 premiership clubs 
between them are carrying, well, depending on which accounts you read and which reports you read, anywhere between 350 and 500 million pounds worth of debt across the 13 of them. I mean, that's just not sustainable in any way, shape or form. And if more clubs start falling, it almost has a domino effect. Gloucester have said that their game against Worcester being called off this weekend will cost them in the region of £300,000, both in terms of costs and loss revenue. So it's it's a really dangerous position that we find the game in. I think there needs to be, there's got to be a more sustainable model. You know, mm. do, do you scale it back? I don't think, I don't want to see us go to a franchise or a regional model like the Welsh have gone to. That's not worked for domestic rugby in Wales. You could argue that it's worked for the national team but it's not worked at a domestic level. But I, I just, you know, where's that money going to come from? 500 million quid's worth of debt. So, yeah, it's a, a real concern. And I think you're right. I think the governance of the game, I mean, how these two, I'm going to say it, these, these two owners that have done this to Worcester mm. and potentially they could end up being knocked right back down to the lowest levels of pyramid rugby like um london uh, london welsh london scottish and richmond were it could end up going that far and i just think that you know for them to have done that is but how on earth did they pass any fit and proper owners test when you look at what they were doing with their existing companies anyway and i think mm. we'll sort of we'll err away from any more on that because i'll probably land us in we shall yes <laughs> <laughs> I mean, having said that, the although doom and gloom off the pitch, on the pitch this weekend, there were some amazing games and some big scores. I mean, Saracens beat the reigning champions Leicester 51-18. I mean, that just, you know, that, that was a spanking. Um, and then uh, London Irish against Bath, a 13-try thriller. Um, and Irish won 47-38. And then Quinns did their usual, um, sh- shipped tries and uh, just held on to beat Northampton 35-29, um, hanging on at the end um, for that one. But yeah, I, I think on the field, the product is great, but it's how you start getting that revenue coming through the, the, the gates and into the grounds off the field. It's ironic because um, I dip in, out, in and out of the club game, but I remember like two weeks ago I was watching... Um, Leicester Saints and like, the final 20 minutes was absolutely insane. It was really insane. I think there was three yellow cards, four, possibly five tries. And that's not how I remember like Premiership Rugby, like going back 10, 15 years. So what's there is brilliant. And then as well, the nature of rugby, what's around it in terms of like fans being able to sit together, the experience of the day, the, the fact that it's a real community. Those are unique things it can hold on to. Mm. But it needs, I hesitate to say, it needs benefactors in some form. And I don't mean necessarily like rich individuals or something like that, but it needs people who are, are going to have the best interests of it at heart to try and give it some long-standing um, resource and support. And it's worth it. It's an amazing sport. It's an amazing community asset as i said earlier it's yeah, worthy I of mean, the same our guest this evening will talk more about that and you know what the community game means to her and uh her enjoyment of that but yes yeah, certainly i think yeah you know if we can start to get the game right at the top level that 
sets the tone and standard as well. Um, just quickly, uh, cricket, England wrapped up the T20 series against Pakistan with a 67-run win to take the series 4-3. That series had been nip and tuck all the way through. They now move on to Australia for three matches there before their T20 World Cup starts in Brisbane on the 17th of October against none other than Pakistan. So with the sides having just played seven games against each other, they should know each other pretty well. England, I think, by Pakistan and then Afghanistan. So uh, certainly going to be um, up against some of the bigger teams and less big teams through that. Um was also the start of the NFL's London games this weekend, Paddy. Uh, I know you're an NFL fan um, or, well, uh, a Finhead, a Dolphins fan. So, <laughs> but if you can, yeah, I mean, games this week, yeah, being be a Dolphins fan down here, it's been tricky. It's been tricky. We've got to talk. There's only one place to, to start, and I hope I'm getting a technical term right. The, the double doink, the double doink, as I'm sure most listeners are aware, but if you're not, let me give you the rundown on this. So, we had um. The Minnesota Vikings taking on the New Orleans Saints, and they won 28-25. Lots happening at the end of the game. Proper fourth quarter drama, all sorts going on. Field goals, touchdowns, lead changes. And then what's known as, I didn't even know this thing had a name. I'd seen it before, but I, this is an education. Double donk, where th- there was a kick that bounced off the uprights twice and failed to drop to go over to obtain the points <laughs> as part of the field goal. Um, and yeah, so the Saints kick, it was a 69-yarder kick he attempted and um, no joy, but um, fantastic drama. And there was also like, we had um, Brady against Mahomes with uh, Tampa and the Chiefs as well. Some fantastic game as well later on um, afterwards as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, just going back to the London game, yeah, that that kick would have tied it um, and taken it into overtime. So uh yeah, you know, it was a, a very costly miss kick, but I'd not heard of it. I've, I've seen them in rugby. We've called them in-offs or, um, you know, bounce-outs. But, uh, yeah, double-doink, I think, is a, is a great term for it. And uh, I'll be looking out for those now. But, yeah, the Chiefs uh, Chiefs against um, Brady's Buccaneers, Mahomes against uh, Brady, at quarterback. I mean, it was the Chiefs getting revenge for the Super Bowl two years ago. And uh, Mahomes at... Absolutely bossed that game. Great. Pulling the strings superbly at quarterback and including a really cheeky flip for their third touchdown. He spun out of two tackles and then just with an underhand flip into the end zone for the touchdown, the runner to pick up the ball and, and, you know, get the touchdown. And you just look at that and go, how on earth has he even thought to do that? The, the, The fleetness of foot and the swiftness of thought just completely... Absolutely unbelievable. But yeah, so we've got two more games in London over the next couple of weeks. Um, the Cheeseheads come to town for the first time ever. The uh, the Green Bay Packers, um, they're the, the final team. to They're the only team in the NFL that haven't played one of the games in London over the last 16, 17 years they've been doing it. So yeah, it's the, uh, um, the Cheeseheads at Tottenham Hotspur ground this weekend. So uh, look forward to seeing that. Staying on London, um, I guess lastly, before we go into contacts, uh, this weekend was Marathon, London Marathon, and a huge event in the uh, in the calendar. You know, what was it? 45,000 runners taking mm. down, pounding the pavements. Uh, the men's and women's wheelchair races each had a new course record set by Marcel Hoog in the uh, men's and Catherine de Brunner in the women's. 
The elite women's race was won by Ethiopian runner. I'm I'm gonna have a crack at this. Yelenza Yahalu, and the men's race by Amos Kipruto from Kenya. He won it in two hours, four minutes, and thirty nine seconds. I mean, I know you've run marathons before, Paddy, but what your time anywhere close to two hours, four minutes, and thirty nine seconds? Probably not. I can't. Nothing. I can't remember anything off the top of my head. If I'm being real with you, but um, yeah, fair play to all those who took part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, big congratulations to two of my colleagues. So uh, Tyler, who completed in just over four and a half hours, and a great run, and then Trevor, who suffered a calf injury at mile eight, oh. still finished. So really well done to him. Um, I mean, if listeners were inspired by Sunday. Then the ballot for April next year is open, only open till Friday. I've got my entry in, so we'll see if this is uh, 14th time lucky after 13 rejections in a row. Um, we'll see if I can avoid, as Tony would call it, a kick in the ballots this year. <laughs> but So we'll, we'll see on that one. So moving into contacts, um, we've said that he's away, but... Um, we knew that Tony would want to still be involved in this week and he sent in his first week one letter from Australia, which I'm going to read out, which is uh, because I'm with my wife, Sue, in Australia, visiting our daughter, Fran, in Perth. I thought whether you liked it or not, I would send you a weekly note about sport in Australia. I want to know about the leading sports, why they're popular and what null and void listeners should know about these sports. So quite randomly, I'll start the week with surfing. Why surfing? Well, to be honest, it was because I discovered that the WSL, which in the UK is the Women's Super League, here in Australia means World Surf League. So having started from a position of almost complete ignorance, which is a position that the Null and Void team often take, um, I wanted to know much more. Firstly, the WSL has headquarters in Santa Monica, California. 180 global contests take place, and this year, 2022, the greatest ever female surfer won the event for the eighth time, Stephanie Colmore, who's Australian. And then the Brazilian Felipe Toledo won the men's, his first ever world championship. Interestingly, surfing is not even in the top 10 most top popular sports in Australia. Nevertheless, I've started on my Australian journey for Null and Void, and who knows which sport I will choose next week. Good day from Perth. So great to hear from you, Tony, and I know you'll be listening over in Perth when this comes out. One thing I would say from, I'm sure Paddy and I, and all of our other listeners, we don't just want to hear you talking about these sports, Tony. We want to hear about you taking part in them. So we want to get some photos of you on a surfboard. So Come on, Grundy, not just a challenge now to talk about these sports. Let's see you getting stuck in. Let's see. I'd love to see a double doink on a sports on a surfboard. Let's have a bit of that. <laughs> I'm sure a double doink would mean something completely different. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Probably best not go there. Um, get a grip. You, you've you got one as the guest this week, Paddy. I, guest host, I've given it over to you to talk about um, your get a grip. My get a grip is for um, a game that happened last week in relation, or I suppose the authorities running the game last week in the Women's Champions League. 
some of you might have come across this. Uh, Arsenal will travel, the Arsenal women's team were traveling to Ajax for the second leg of their Champions League qualifier. 2 2 draw in the first leg, big game, everything on the line to get in the group stages, mega deal. They get there in the warm up, and um, the manager and the goalie are like, these goals don't look right. There's something up with these goals. They get the measuring tape out, I kid you not, and they start looking at it, and um, they're the wrong size goals. So the Premier Club, European Club, championship games um in 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 women's football i had the wrong goal set up the wrong goal size now um the reporting since then this has kind of gradually died a death so i think actually it's not anything malevolent i don't think there's actually any foul play going on here of like someone trying to use shrinking goals well, that's my assumption anyway but i think it's genuinely just negligence or a bit of incompetence around the setup and what was prepared for a match and this is my get a grip around you know we've come so far we've seen a lot of positive moves in in the space in the uk and england especially with the women's game women's football but like stuff like that really matters can you imagine if a champions league game uh, this week like say into barcelona are playing as we record can you imagine if they had to stop that for half an hour before kickoff oh we've got the wrong size goals or it's not quite set up right or we don't have any corner flags it'd be ridiculous there'd be outcry um and there hasn't really been as much attention as i think there should have been um for this they got there in the end the match happened but like for the authorities either in holland or beyond like show a bit of respect and get a grip sort these small small issues out for a bigger picture need yeah, I mean, again, it's it's just one of these microaggressions, if you like, that the women's game has to put up with that, again, you wouldn't see happen in the men's game. So, yeah, I certainly totally second that. And, yeah, you know, let's get it sorted. We want the women's game to grow. It's massively growing, you know, both at European level and definitely domestically. So just these what seem like small things, but, you know, it's the grains of sand that kill the oyster. So get it. Mm. Authorities, clubs. Yeah, I'd second that, Paddy. Get a grip. Should we bring the tone back up and get our guests on? Do it. I think we should. So uh, with the Women's World Cup starting on Saturday and the Red Roses as favourites, our guest is someone who's played rugby with and against some of those taking part in the tournament. She's played for Slough Ladies, Marlow Ladies and Medway, where she played alongside former Red Rose and World Cup winner Rachel Burford and Scotland International Deb McCormack, both of whom are commentating and doing punditry in this World Cup in New Zealand. It's also the club where current England prop Shauna Brown started playing rugby. On top of that, she's a keen sailor and in 2015-16 was part of the Visit Seattle crew on the clip around the world sailing race. So please welcome my good friend, Emily Bambridge. Hi, Emily. How are you doing? Hi, Andy. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, all, all well, thanks. All well. So um, basically, to start with, uh, before we get into the World Cup and the Red Roses, um, let's find out a bit more about your rugby journey. So yeah. how, how did you get started playing rugby? So strangely, I was actually a hockey player for most of my teens. So I started playing hockey at the age of 14, went to uni, having played hockey at uni, came home, still played hockey. Um, and my younger brother played rugby. So as you do as your siblings, you go and support them. So I was watching one of his Colts games and some guy on the sideline said, 
oh, you're wearing a, a hockey team hoodie. And I'm like, yeah, so you could play rugby. And I was like, I could. And I was like, I've always watched it. It's something our family's always watched. My mum and dad always watched. So I knew the game, but I'd never really seen women play the game, to be fair. Um, so I was like, okay. And I'm not really one to shy away from doing something. So I said, okay, so what do I do? And he said, well, turn up here at half past seven on, I think it was a Monday and a Wednesday then. Um, and we'll show you. So, yeah, so that's how I ended up playing women's rugby. And for a season, I played both hockey and rugby. So I played hockey on the Saturday, rugby on the Sunday, um, and then came to my senses and thought I need to choose one. Um, mm -hmm. And actually, at the time, um, I was working in the hospitality industry. So Saturdays were a lot harder to get off. Sundays were easier. So I opted to play rugby. Um, and, and that was the beginning of my journey, really. That's how I started. So that was at Medway, yeah? Uh, yes. yeah Medway always, they've had quite a good women's setup. They were one of the earlier clubs to maybe have a, a women. So, yeah, we've actually, so during the pandemic, the team, the women's team at Medway actually celebrated their 30 years um, of having a women's team. So it was founded in 1987 um, by some ex-internationals um, from back then. Um, I do have their names. So Chris Gurney, Emma Mitchell, Jane Mitchell and Amanda Bennett actually created the first women's team at Medway. Mm -hmm. um, and they just wanted a platform. They wanted to be able to play rugby at club level. Um, and they pulled together uh, with another rugby club, actually. Well, a men's rugby club then at the time, um, but then founded it into the Medway Rugby Club. Um, so, yeah, so 30 years of women's rugby is pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> when you think about that start there. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I was just going to ask on that. Sorry to cut across you. Um, a sense of comparison or scale, like how many other clubs are there that have anywhere close to that 10 year or are there many others that have like 30 years, if at all? Because I think you'll be looking at a handful. I, I'd yeah. say five to 10 tops. Um, I know that they used to travel a lot um, in terms of, where they needed to play. I mean, when I started playing rugby, we would get 15 and maybe one or two on the sideline. It was a struggle to get a 15 women's side. Um, and, you know, like any game of rugby, it's full of all sorts of different people, all sorts of different walks of life. Um, and, yeah, it was a strange transition from hockey for me because hockey women's was, you know, completely aware of everyone knew about women's hockey and if I went to work the next day saying oh, I played rugby yesterday people would look at me and be like what sorry what you played rugby and I'm like <laughs> yes I played rugby <laughs> um so yeah so it was an interesting time because we actually at that point so you you mentioned obviously I was with Medway and um played with Rachel and, and Debs they were people I played with just as the team and obviously they have talent um and I actually played with not only Rachel, but her mum and her sister all in the same team. Oh, and, wow. And that's how the team was made up. You know, people that are quite older ex-players. So one of the long-standing team players at Medway is a lady called Anne. She has played rugby there since they started. Blimey. So she has played for the full 30 years. Oh, my goodness. So... 
you bounced around a bit then, I guess, um, with other clubs, depending on where you were living and working at the time. So Yeah, uh, yeah with hospitality, I just followed work, really. Um, so ended up moving the other side of London um, and played with Slough Ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, and they struggled even more to get players, if I'm honest. Um, I did take on the captaincy for a season, um, but that was a real challenge. There just wasn't the uptake. Um, and while I was playing there, actually, I hadn't mentioned previously, but um, one of the players went to university. She went to St. George's Medical School and they had a rugby team, a women's rugby team playing um, there. So quite often as a team, I'd be like, Kat, can I um, have some of your players, please? Because I don't have enough. And there was one Sunday in particular we played. So we went and helped them. So we played two games on Sunday. We played for the St. George's team in the morning and then Slough Ladies in the afternoon. Needless to say that it was a hard day on Monday. (laughs) Hospitality industry, you're on your feet. It's not like you can sit back and go, you know what, guys, I I had two rugby games yesterday. I'm going to take it a bit easy today. Yeah, no. (laughs) No such luck. I was going to say, what happened in the second match? Was it just an absolute, like, Uh, we we just Yeah, it wasn't the best idea, I'll give you that. Um, (laughs) but we had to turn up so we turned up um, and we had fun and that's the other great thing about rugby isn't it you know you have a a team of people that are there not especially at some club levels it's a social thing it's it's about getting out being competitive with your friends and enjoying the exercise that you're doing while you're doing it Um, and yeah we were we were exhausted but we enjoyed it we had a laugh the ref I remember you know being really quite funny with us about it because he's like come on hurry up they're running away from you sort of thing so it was all in the in the best spirit I mean obviously not the most competitive of games for us um but it really was a tough time for Sal um because we just didn't have the players so we were trying so hard to keep it um but unfortunately we had to kind of let it go which was a real shame because a lot of the clubs in and around the surrounding areas were starting to get women's teams but obviously when you take into account working and evening time, being able to travel makes it a challenge. So we were losing people that came from further afield because something local had started up. Um, and then that meant obviously Slough disappeared. And I think my options were then Bracknell or Marlow. Um, and I did try both, but ended up with Marlow because several other people from Slough went to Marlow. So it was just sort of, you know, you went with the people you knew. Um, and yeah, and I played for Marlow, I think, two or three seasons now. Um, I mean, I, I've coached over at Marlow. Um, if you've ever played on that bottom pitch there that's closest to the river, it's basically like a marsh. Um, yeah. So. yeah, and then there's the inaugural, you know, going in the river after a game, um, <laughs> which is quite nippy. <laughs> Sorry, wait, hang on, time out, time out. As someone who's not been to this river, I need a bit more d- detail about why jump, what, jumping in the river? What? It's just what you do. So instead of an ice bath, you go in the river. Oh I mean, it, it's the Thames there, Paddy. It, yeah. uh, it's about a, a, a 200 metre walk through a footpath um, along the edge of the woods uh, and into the Thames. In fact, I went past the end of Marlow Rugby Club um, at about three in the morning, four in the morning on the uh, Thames Path Challenge the other week. Uh, thick fog at that point. So I was desperately trying to follow the path and not veer off and take an ice bath of my own uh, yeah. following the path. So once you wrapped up with um, Marlow, 
Um, I mean, what was it then back to Medway or was it a bit of a break? I had a bit of a hiatus, to be honest. Um, work really took over um, and life as, as it happens. And then obviously I'd stayed in touch with people at Medway. I'd made really good friends there, um, sort of the same age group as Rachel and Debs. There was quite a group of us. And they put on their Facebook page, they were struggling. And someone just said, why don't you come and play? And I was like, I haven't got any boots anymore they're like we'll get you boots don't worry just come I was like I haven't played for like two or three years I was like we don't care just get here so yeah so I ended up playing again I think it I think it must have been two or three years I had off um and went back and got back on the pitch and just felt like I'd never left um it's just I can't I've always played a team sport and it's just something you can't really kind of categorize it's like it's just that feeling when you're on the pitch, you're slightly nervous, you're slightly excited, you're slightly apprehensive, you don't really know what's going to happen, but you're just going to go out, you're going to give it your all, get covered in some mud and and have some fun, really. Um, and by this point, Medway were coming back up to being really competitive as well. Mm. So they built their team up. I think it just happened to be they'd had several injuries at this point. Um, so, I mean, from where we were struggling to get 15 out, and I'm talking sort of early to mid 2000s to now. So across the women's and girls teams, we have over 125 people. So That's we have brilliant. a women's first team. We have a women's development team. Then there's an under 18s, under 16s, under 14s and an under 12 girls team. Which is just astronomical when you think about that growth. Yeah, I mean, when when the talk, all, all the doom and gloom talk in uh, even this week in the rugby paper is about the, uh, the the numbers in the community game falling year on year, it seems to be that it's the women's game is bucking that trend and growing. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, every time I go back to the club, um, so I went for the, the 30th anniversary sort of end of season meal just to go and see some friends and and see how everyone was getting on. There were so many new faces, you know, it's so nice to see that the youngsters are coming through the club as well. So they are, they're starting off at that, that under 12, under, you know, even younger minis. The minis festival was on Sunday and it's a massive thing at the club. You know, it literally takes over every pitch, um, the clubhouse, and it's such a great way to beginning that grassroots rugby, I think is so nice to see that they're so embracing of it. Can I ask, sorry, I'm just picturing the way you've described it there, 30 years, certain people have seen it all the way through that through that period, amazing advocacy and agency to try and keep that going. You've got these huge numbers now. If you were to pick out one thing or a couple of things, because it sounds like there's like a group of people really working hard going back some years who've kept it going and now it's exploding out a bit. What could either like um, ruling bodies, agencies, associations, whatever body or whoever it is, what's the one or two things you think perhaps they could do for the women's game to help that, like that, that explosion you just described at that club be amplified across the piece? Is, is there something more missing perhaps? And there might not be, there could actually be stuff, you know, the, the rugby unions are doing, but. Yeah, I think, I think you have to be careful not to hog anything. So talk about the internationals that came through the club so Rachel when she was with us she was playing in our our team when I was playing she left our team as soon as she turned 18 and went and played at Henley and, and then moved on because 
that was her route and the club encouraged that and I think that's really key is that a club quite easily hold on to a good player but don't necessarily recognize that they need to move it's for their good that they need to move and push them away almost in a way you know you need to go and do this because you've got that talent and you need to move forward and I think when a club can do that for someone other people go actually this club isn't about themselves it's about the people that they are sort of encompassing together you know it's a it's a wider development piece um I actually work in apprenticeships and it's a real key thing to me is that businesses are there to develop other people and if you take that a business is to do that then shouldn't a rugby club be the same shouldn't they have that ethos because technically they are a business as well you know they need to make money in order to to sustain themselves if you've got that ethos of we're developing people for the future and that includes internally as well you know you're talking about your treasurer your chairwoman chairman um i say chairwoman because medway appointed their first chairwoman this year um so yeah there's all sorts of things that are coming from within the club because people are being developed within the club um and i think that's got to be a really strong point for any club um and for the rfu to look at as well you know what can clubs do for their individuals you know we all look at the, the, the first aid training that people have and you know doing a refs course or those little things that actually might not mean something at that particular moment but when you look back and go actually they gave me all these things and then they that person may not have played rugby for 10 years but they've got a child now and they think oh, actually what club should I go to well that club invested in me so actually I'm going to take it back to them and it's kind of a full circle thing a virtuous circle yeah that's brilliant mm. i mean it leads us very nicely into talking about i guess the the world cup that's coming up i mean it starts this saturday i think england's game against fiji is on at somewhere like 4:45 in the morning itv are covering the whole of the world cup and hopefully that can do something as well to build the profile yeah um i don't know if you've looked at how the World Cup's shaping up. I mean, obviously England go into it in New Zealand as favourites. They just finished or still on a 25-match winning streak, which is the most by any international team, be it men's or women's, which, you know, fantastic. So, again, what are your thoughts, hopes, expectations for the World Cup in New Zealand then? Um, well, obviously, my first thing was that I saw that Rachel and Debs are both working on the World Cup. So for me, that was kind of like, you know, they've got to the, a different point in their career, like having come from where they were um, and now they're in this position. They've, they've completely manifested a completely different way of life now that they've retired from what they've been doing and still playing um, rugby, obviously, alongside. Um, I'd love for us to win. You know, I'm, I'm a women's rugby player. I'd love that celebration of supporting our teams um you know we all saw the success that women's football had and what that did for the country in terms of you know upping the profile um getting people out there playing football women's so i know that women's rugby has already had a little bit of that because of previous world cups and it has sort of trickled out i would say um from those previous world cups because we did so well so I think then having the publicity following them sparked people's interest. So I'd love that this one begins with the spark at the beginning, not at the end. 
Um, so it'd be great to see the media taking that on from, you know, the, the forefront of starting the World Cup right the way through. And I think, unfortunately, the media have a big part to play in it. Um, and they need to make sure that if they want this profile to grow, that they report on it, because I think the wider population, that's the only way it gets out. Um, because you've got, you know, a club, but unless you're actively involved in rugby or know someone that is, you wouldn't necessarily know that it's happening. Mm. I mean, yeah, certainly I know ITV, obviously they, they've got their investment and they want to push it. Um, for any of our listeners who haven't caught it this week, there's a fantastic two-part documentary being on um, about the Red Roses team and it goes behind the scenes through their pre-World Cup camp that was taking place this summer right through to the selection dilemmas. And um, I've where we're recording on a Tuesday night, I've only seen the first one. The second one's out tonight. But uh, certainly that, you know, just some of the uh, the stories that the players have got, the the tension, the, the emotion around that sort of training camp and, and being in competition, you know, 40 players competing for a place on that plane to Australia. I mean, it's it's amazing to see behind the scenes and something that I guess we've seen with Lions tours and the, everyone's seen the Living With Lions videos. But to see that being done for a for, for an England women's team, I think is great as well. I think if, if I could say one thing to ITV, get it earlier in the evening so that more people can watch it. You know, 20 to 11 at night is uh, not prime time television, but... I guess it's a start. It's something that we've not had before for the women's game. And, you know, this behind the scenes look, um, you know, next year, the Six Nations uh, is now set in the calendar as being separate from the men's so it can have its own profile. And I think England's final game is against France at Twickenham, which they're hoping, fingers crossed. I know, Emily, we've spoken offline about uh, getting a cabal of us along to that to uh go and support it, but potentially it could be the biggest crowd ever at a women's uh, rugby international. They're already talking about potentially, I think they've got 30,000 tickets sold for some of the games at Eden Park in New Zealand, which is unfortunately as much as Eden Park can hold, not being one of the uh, biggest stadia, rugby stadia in the world. But, uh, you know, that in itself is going to top the numbers that were in New Zealand. So we're starting to see it. I guess it's how the RFU and that then get it to trickle down to the grassroots level? Do you think it's it's one or the other, or do you think it needs to be both? I think it it, it will always be both. I mean, I don't think you can rely on one or the other. Um, it needs to work hand in hand, really. Um, there are plenty of people like me that have played rugby and can have their own story about how they fell into it, because that's effectively what happened to me. But there are also now people, I mean, the under 18s at Medway, they're being called up to the England camp. You know, that we've got three, three from Medway literally going off to, to train. Um, and that is something that needs to be shouted about, you know. But also, I think everyone else needs to be shouted about. You know, you're playing a sport. It's it's a a way that, sorry, that didn't come out right, but basically we're all about health conscious now we need to have a bit more energy in our lives and rugby really is the game for everyone I mean Andy you'll agree with me everyone and anyone can play rugby um, and we just have to hold on to that that it, it doesn't become too elite in some areas and I think that's really key 
to keep it grassroots. Because if you go too far the other way, people will back out again and go, well, that's a lot of dedication. I'm not sure I can get to that level. So having things like, um, I know the men's have different teams and quite often they have almost like a social team. So you go along to rugby and you're like, I'm just here to play a game, to meet some friends and have a beer afterwards. That's what I want out of my Saturday game. And a lot of clubs have kind of acknowledged that and put that in place. And that's the same. So with the women's team for ours, we've obviously got a development squad, but that's where a lot of the social is as well. So the, those that want to push through will push through and up into the firsts. But those that are quite happy to play a game and enjoy that, um, get out on a Sunday, a bit of fresh air, uh, run around a pitch, then I think it's really crucial from both angles that that remains because mm-hmm. I think that's where you would lose that grassroots if you push too far to make everything elite and everything athletic. Um, you would definitely lose just the general general public wanting to be involved, especially at a later age as well, I think. Um, you know, we used to have people come along from any age to go, I've never played, I just fancied having a, having a go. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. So, on that, I was just going to ask you like two questions, if I could. Like, if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, do you know what? Whatever age they are, whatever their experience, do you know what? I might try and find a way to get involved, whatever level. How could they do that? What's like the simplest or best way you'd advise? And then, if they've got a moment of doubt, maybe they've been away from the game for a while, maybe they've got no, they have no experience. Like, yeah, why should they get involved? From your experience, the benefit, the effect it's had on your life why should I get involved? So the how and the why. Okay. So how I'd say the internet is an amazing place. Um, the probably the easiest way to do it is to Google rugby clubs local that, you know, what is there near me um, in terms of a rugby club? Because if they're not particularly local and you can't find someone, maybe just reach out to a rugby club and they will be able to help. So if you know of one, drop them an email, a message on their, their socials, say, look, I'm really interested in coming along to a training session. I don't know which one's local. Can you help me? And it's an, it's a community rugby. So they will want to help you because we want to keep people playing rugby. Um, And then for me, it's like anything, is it? Tonight, I went to my first ever Pilates class. I've never been. I'm in a new village. I've no idea where, who there is lives here. And I was stood there going, why am I feeling so nervous? Because it's a natural thing. Everyone does feel that. Um, And it's great to push yourself out of your comfort zone. You know, if we spent our whole life doing nothing that pushed us, we wouldn't ever get that feeling. And I think it's healthy. I think it's something that's really good for your mental health as well as your physical health to get out and do something different for you. It might not be for you. That's fine. But you tried it. Um, there's quite often things where, I mean, Pilates, I'm not sure if it's definitely for me, but I'm going to give it a little bit more of a go. Um And yeah, it just comes down to the individual. I mean, for me, I guess it's it's difficult because I played team sport before rugby. So I understood team ethos and being part of something. And to me, that's really important. So everything I've ever done socially, like as a sport or an activity, has generally been team orientated. Yeah, it's it's a strange one. I think for me, it just created those friendship groups. I mean, I've got friends from then you know from when I was 21 22 not not really knowing anyone again going back to a club and just going do you know what I need I need a friendship group I need someone who's going to be there for me and be there through everything 
you know, we can still catch up now. I mean, you can't bottle something like that. Um, so if you're ever in doubt, just go and try it. It is scary. There are people out there, um, but generally most of them are really friendly. So <laughs> just have a go. I, I'd certainly echo that. And just to link to what you said, if people are interested and to build on your answer, englandrugby.com on there, there is a tab somewhere that's about participation. And it, it on that drop down is find a club and it'll tell you where your nearest club are and it'll tell you, for those of you that are interested in playing men's rugby, tell you where the men's teams are, women's teams, youth teams, even touch rugby teams. Now, for those that aren't necessarily overly keen on the uh, the thud and blunder of the physical contact of the game, touch rugby is a great way to get involved. And there are a lot of teams that are either men's, women's or mixed on touch rugby as well. So definitely, I think as well, though, I think like for me, my love of rugby actually started just spectating. So when I watched it at home, it was a family thing. My dad watched it. My dad played when he was at school, college. So he followed it from that perspective. But because, you know, I I did what I was told and we just like, we're watching the rugby. We only had one TV in the house. That's what was on. Um, And that's where my love of Johnny Wilkinson came from because I was watching rugby with my dad. Um, You know, it was that. I watched his first game with Newcastle Falcons. That's my claim to fame. Yeah, so I watched rugby more than I ever played, really, because it started somewhere. And I think it's really important to say that even if you don't want to play, you can still be part of the club. You know, at Medway, there are people that come and watch because they have been involved in another way. You know, maybe they had a child that came, but they actually really enjoyed just coming to watch the rugby, take the dog for a walk around the outside, come back in, watch a bit of rugby, get a pint. Um, be part of something you don't have to play um, you know there are loads of other ways of being involved in a community sport like that brilliant Emily I think that's um, a great uh, insight into both your experience of the game a great call to arms for people to get involved in their local club and also hopefully a um, a, a start to what should be a really great five six weeks um, fingers crossed with England making it all the way through and bringing the trophy home from New Zealand. So, Emily, thanks ever so much. No, thank you. Lovely to chat. That was great, wasn't it, Paddy? I mean, absolutely fantastic to hear from Emily, um, her experience of the game and what she thinks that this World Cup could mean for the women's game in the UK. Amazing. Amazing to hear how she got involved almost by chance and just the legacy it's given her and just the ideas and just realising what an opportunity we've got ahead of the next few months in, in that space and in the game. Yeah, I mean, with a fingers crossed, a Red Roses win, uh, not just for those of us that support them, but hopefully it could have what I think people are already talking about and terming as the, the Lionesses effect. So, yeah, you know, and good luck to England. I'll be there early morning, glued to the telly, probably a cup of coffee in one hand and bacon butty in the other watching them take on Fiji in the opening game. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. And I want to say a huge thank you, Paddy, to uh, coming in and filling the sizable shoes uh, of Mr. Grundy. It's been an absolute pleasure and privilege to be here, Rip. Long-time listener, first-time appearance. But um, (laughs) no, thank you so much. Really enjoyed the conversation and uh, the conversation, Emily, as well. And uh, yeah, looking forward to listening to future shows. 
Brilliant. Thanks, buddy. So um, again, for listeners, if you want to get in touch, then listen out for the contact details at the end. If you want to chat to us about anything we've talked about this week, the rugby, the um, football, the NFL, cricket, anything at all, then please do get in touch. And otherwise, um, as ever, we'll catch up with you next week at a time and place that suits you. So thanks ever so much. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.